Well, as I say, we're in the Gospel of Luke because we're in a series called Encounter, and we're looking over nine weeks at nine uh, kind of encounters, often first-time encounters that people had with Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, the pretty life-changing results that came about as a, uh, as a consequence. And this morning's passage actually has two encounters, so you get two for the price of one this morning. And we've got two very different people. Two very different people who encounter Jesus for themselves this morning in this passage. One is male and one is female. One is rich and one is poor. One is kind of revered and exalted and one is rejected and scorned. One leaves the Jewish synagogue and one isn't even allowed in the Jewish synagogue. So very, very different people, but both united in the sense that they're both desperate. They're both desperate. As a result, they take a risk and they encounter Jesus for themselves. And that really is consistent. What we've been saying throughout this series is that an encounter with Jesus really is for anyone who will take a step, who will take a risk. We've said that over and over again each week. That an encounter with Jesus Christ is for anyone, whether it's for the first time, as someone who's yet to be a Christian, or someone who's been a Christian for a long time and is seeking a fresh encounter with Jesus. It's for anyone. He's for anyone. So, Luke Chapter 8 is the passage this morning. I'm going to read from verse 40. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. If not, the passage should appear on the screen behind me. And uh, just contextually, Jesus in the preceding passages has, made it, has spent some time on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's why verse 40 uh, begins like this. Now when Jesus returned uh, towards his home, home territory, as it were, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you? But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone, to tell no one what had happened. 
quite an encounter, <laughs> well, quite a pair of encounters. Um, one of my childhood memories, which might actually tally with some of your childhood memories, I don't know, but one of my childhood memories is of, as a child, I was one of four, elders to four. Uh, we used to go on holiday towards Devon and Cornwall. We lived in Oxfordshire. And so we would regularly, every summer, be kind of packed into our rust bucket of a Peugeot 505, if you remember those cars, seven-seaters, not exactly a luxurious vehicle. And we were packed into those, and we would then set off on a kind of four- or five-hour journey, most years, on a holiday to uh, Devon and Cornwall. Now, when you're kind of eight years old, a four- or five-hour journey is a long time. It's like an eternity. And I remember very vividly, time and time again, saying the immortal words, the words that I think children throughout the ages have uttered. Are we nearly there yet? Which I'm guessing many of you would also have uttered as children, or indeed if you're parents, you might have children who utter those words, or some version of those words. Are we nearly there yet? It felt like an eternity. I hated the waiting. I wanted to get to holiday. It's four or five hour journey, and you're cramped up, and I've got annoying siblings, and it's hot. Are we nearly there yet? Waiting was hard. Very, very hard. But it strikes me that it's not only children that find waiting hard. In fact, it strikes me that in our culture today, I wonder, I'm not not sure there's ever been a culture where adults have found waiting as hard as they do now. I think we found waiting increasingly hard in 2017. Just one example for you. The Guardian recently reported on a study. And the study showed that 32% of customers will abandon their search on a website within one and five seconds if the website doesn't move. So within one or five seconds, if your click doesn't take you to the next page, you're gone, on to the next thing. Any of us done that? We're not used to waiting. Just two seconds, too long, on to the next thing. One to five seconds and we'll move on. We're not a culture that is used to waiting. Uh, Amazon have just launched Amazon, Amazon Fresh. And in their bid to undercut the supermarkets, rather than ordering your food to arrive the next day or booking a slot for the week, hours and fresh, you can order it by lunch and have it by dinner time, is their new kind of strap line. We don't like waiting. We want things as immediately and as quickly and accessibly as possible. We find waiting hard. And that's my first point this morning, that waiting is hard. And I want us to understand just how hard the waiting has been for these two people in this uh, kind of dual encounter with Jesus. First of all, think about the woman that we've just met, how hard the waiting has been for her. She's had some kind of bleeding problem. We don't know if it's a genetic condition, perhaps, like hemophilia or a result of complications with her monthly cycle or perhaps something else. Either way, physically at least, waiting has been very, very hard for her. Just imagine how much strength she must have lost time and time again, how exhausted she must have been. Physically, her financial resources have all gone as she's trying to find a cure for her condition. And not just physically, socially, the waiting over these 12 years would have been so, so hard. So her hemorrhaging, meant that according to uh, Jewish law, she was ceremonially unclean. So that meant she was unable to go to the temple, unable to worship, unable to hear the word of God, opened and taught, unable really to access her own community. If she's married, she's probably unable to be intimate with her husband. If she has a family, she would often have been unable to even touch or cuddle her children. And even more so, Within that context, many of her fellow Jewish citizens would have held the belief that the reason that she suffered from this condition was because of a past sin. 
We know that from other Bible texts. People thought that if you had a condition, something wrong with you, often it was because of your own fault. Now, Jesus dismissed that kind of point of view. But many people thought it. It's your fault. You're like this. God's punishing you. Do you imagine how the last 12 years have been for her? Exhausting physically. Excluded socially. Shamed spiritually. Hoping that one day God might intervene and might heal her. She's been waiting. And waiting's hard. And then you have Jairus. Jairus is very different in almost every way. Except he too has to endure a moment of waiting. So Jairus is a very eminent figure. The text tells us that he's the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. And one commentator uh, described him like this, a man of great devotion to God, morally respectable, as well as a figure of wealth and social prominence. So Jairus really is kind of everything that the woman is not, except that he too is desperate. And so he falls at Jesus' feet and implores him to come to his house to see if Jesus can save his dying daughter. And Jesus readily agrees and comes on his way. Now, at this point, just try and, rather than observing the scene, try and put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Try and step into the scene with him. Just imagine, this is your only daughter, your little 12-year-old girl who is close to death. And, and you've heard, maybe you've even witnessed that this Jesus can do pretty remarkable things. This is your little girl, so you'll do anything to uh, keep her alive. And Jesus really is your last hope. And so as you come to him, hope is kind of just hanging by a tenterhooks, really. But there's enough hope, because you know or you suspect that Jesus can do the kind of thing that you need. And so really now, as soon as Jesus responds, hope starts to spark into life a little bit more. And so really now for you, everything just hones into one very, very clear target. Nothing else in life matters. All that matters is getting Jesus through this crowd to your house, to your daughter, as quick as possible. And so you start barging your way through the crowd. I mean, you're not embarrassed to push people out of your way. There's nothing else that matters here other than getting Jesus to your little girl. And, and people are bumping into you, and they're bumping into Jesus, and they're not getting out of the way. And, and some people kind of just want to observe and seem like want to spectate. And you feel like saying, do you not understand? This is not some spectacle. This is my little girl we've got to get to. And so you're pushing people out of the way, and the, the dust is rising in the air, and the streets maybe are cramped, and you're being knocked against, and they're shouting. And Jesus stops. He stops. What's what's he doing? What on earth could he be doing? And then he starts asking who's touched him. And you're like, what do you mean who's touched you? And and before you can say exactly what you want to say to Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples takes the words right out of your mouth and says, "Uh, Master, the crowds surround you. What do you mean someone touched you, you're thinking? We're in the middle of a thronging mass of people. Obviously people are touching you. Can we just get moving? And then it gets worse because now some woman comes out from the crowd and and she kneels at his feet in the way that you did a few minutes ago and and Jesus is talking to her and she's saying that actually she's been healed. So part of you are thinking, well, I guess that's a good thing. That gives me some more hope. But what's this delay about? And and now Jesus is talking to her and, and calling her daughter and you're thinking, frankly, never mind this daughter. What about my daughter? Imagine what the waiting must have been like for Jairus in those moments as everything got delayed. Jesus, what, what are you doing, Jairus must have thought. This is not just odd behavior. This is, this is unconscionable that you should delay in this way. 
I wonder, have you ever felt either a little or a lot like Jairus? Have you ever had that sense? Every part of you feels like you know exactly what God should be doing right now. It's very, very clear. Why doesn't God get it? It's patently clear what he needs to do. Why is he delaying? I've been exploring, I think, something about just personally this week. What? It's so clear what God needs to do, and he doesn't. He delays. Maybe it's just me. You can wink with your left eye if I'm not the only one. <laughs> Waiting on God is really hard. And then a servant from your household just appears over your shoulder and whispers the words into your ear that bring your whole world crashing down. It's over. She's dead. Waiting on God is really hard. (laughs) Really hard. I wonder what you're waiting on God for, whether it's in the big stuff or the smaller stuff. I wonder if any of you feel like the woman, perhaps, in the sense that this thing has been ages. It's a a long-standing wait, perhaps. And maybe you kind of got used to it, accustomed to it to a degree, but it's there and it sits and it doesn't seem to be shifting and I don't know why God hasn't acted because it's been a long time. Or maybe you feel a bit more like Jairus and rather than something that's been long-standing you become accustomed to it, this is a a newish thing. It's it's urgent. It's more of a crisis than a long-standing wait and it's so clear that God has to intervene right now. There's no other option. It, It cannot be any other way as far as you're concerned. Or perhaps you're like Jairus in a different sense. And you were in that place and God didn't act seemingly and it's too late. It's gone. And maybe you're not in any of those places. Maybe life is not like that at the moment. Life's pretty good, pretty smooth. But I can tell you one thing as your pastor who loves you. The nature of following Jesus is there will be moments when it will feel like agonizing that God is not acting. (laughs) So even if you're not in that place at the moment, I want to lovingly say to you, use this time to get equipped so that when you are, you can walk through it. And it makes a great person of you rather than crushes you. But waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. Number two this morning, waiting is mysterious. It's not just hard, but waiting is mysterious. Waiting on the timing of God when it is in stark contrast to our timing, is not just hard, but it is full of mystery. And to some extent, I I guess it should be, shouldn't it? I guess what, what I mean by that is, if God is who he says he is, if he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, if he is somehow outside of time and space, if he is infinite and eternal, if he is all knowing, then surely, by definition, his timing will be different to ours, won't it? And when I think about it as objectively and logically as I can, and often it's hard, isn't it, to think about it objectively and logically, because we're thinking about it subjectively and emotionally, but when I just try and put myself into a more objective place, I think that's kind of a good thing. It's a good thing that God's timing is different and mysterious, because... I don't want a God, well, put it like this, as much as I do want God to do things now, <laughs> on my terms, according to my timing, 
according to my spreadsheet and planning document and diary, as much as I do want God very often to do things like that, I don't actually want a God just like me. I do not want a God whose mood is affected by the weekend sports results. I don't want a God who is temporary. I don't want a God who changes his mind as time passes. I don't want a God who is subject to all kinds of pressures and trends and styles. I don't want a God who can't see the bigger picture, who is unable to have a perspective beyond the here and the now. And, and the good news is, God is not like that. He's not like that. He is unchanging and consistent through the ages. But I mean, he's not blown about this way and that by pressures and trends and circumstances. And he has a plan for your, for your life that is eternal. So his plan for your life is much more profound than today, as pressing as today might be, or tomorrow, or this week. His plan is much more profound even than this life. And I know the urgency of today. I know from this week the urgency of what needs to happen today, this week. But God's plan for your life is so much more than this week, this month, this year, even this life. It's an eternal plan. He's doing things that have an eternal, or he's doing them with an eternal perspective. Psalm 90 puts it like this. The psalmist wrote this from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, whatever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as a day when it is past, or as a watch in the night. In Ephesians 3, the writer Paul puts it like this when he's writing his letter to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, when you have a God who has always been and will always be, who is everlasting, who is unchanging, who has an eternal purpose, then it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that Isaiah would say in chapter 55, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Put it like this. Are you you really going to say, because I cannot see a reason why God would wait or ask me to wait, there cannot be one. Now I know, emotionally, that statement makes sense. But think about it. Logically, I'm not sure it stacks up if he's like the God that we've just been describing. There is a mystery to God and specifically to waiting on him. You know, he has eternal purposes. He has always been, and I am finite and limited. Like a vapor, actually. The Bible says rather bluntly on one occasion. So there is mystery in the waiting sometimes, as well as it being hard. So it's hard. It's mysterious. I also want to put it to you that the waiting is worth it. I want to put it to you that the waiting is worth it. Why, you say? Two reasons. One, we learn to take steps of faith. Two, we get even more than we ask for. 
Let me explain like this. We learn to take steps of faith. Back into the passage. Something about the time the woman has spent waiting seems to have meant that it's brought her to a place where she is prepared to take a fresh and different type of faith step. So it's, it's, what I mean by that is it's enormously risky for her to do what she does. It's not the same as just going to a, a medical person. It's enormously risky for her to place her trust in Jesus because for her to be amongst a crowd of people when she is ceremonially unclean and likely to bleed at any time is very, very risky for her. And to then deliberately touch Jesus, a man, a rabbi, is very risky for her. What she is effectively doing by touching him is making him ceremonially unclean. She's polluting him. That's why I think the text tells us that she approaches him from behind because she doesn't want him to know. But it's a step of faith. It is a step. She chooses to act. She doesn't stay in the crowd. She chooses to think maybe, just maybe, God is good. Maybe this Jesus is, is good and that he is both kind and powerful or to put it a different way, willing and able. And although she's only ever known, it seems, in these last 12 years, rejection, disappointment, frustration, she thinks, maybe I'll receive healing. And she does. She does. In a moment, 12 years of isolation and rejection and pain is wiped away in a moment because she learnt to take a new and a fresh step of faith and trust different than the things she's taken before. And Jairus too, he learns to have trust. Think about it. He came to Jesus, trusting that Jesus might be able to heal his daughter before she died. And then he's asked to trust Jesus that he can resurrect her daughter from death. His daughter from death. I'm, I'm speculating, I'm guessing, as he made his way back to his house and you've got this public Middle Eastern wailing and mourning, loud, deafening, wailing and mourning, and then some scoffing, mocking, I'm, I'm guessing he is hanging on to faith by his fingertips. But he is, he's there, he's in the room. He does learn to trust in a remarkably new way. And secondly, we get more than we ask for. That's why I think the waiting is worth it. We get more than we ask for. Did you notice how Jesus addressed the woman in verse 48? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now that is a profound sentence. Jesus never actually uses the word daughter to address anyone in the whole of the New Testament other than this woman. So he's doing something very, very deliberate. And he knows, of course, exactly what he's doing. He's doing so much more, even than bringing her the physical healing (laughs) that she's uh, longed for for so many years. He's bringing her spiritual healing and emotional healing all at the same time. He's saying to her, through faith, you're you're a daughter of God now. You've been excluded, you've been deemed impure, polluted goods, but you're loved and you're valued. He's saying the kingdom of God is for you. 
You're a daughter of God, a daughter of the kingdom. You can go in peace because you are now at peace with God, now and forever. And Jairus too, I think, gets more than he bargained for. He came for a healing, he got a resurrection. Now I just want you to see, just final few thoughts, I want you to see in this extraordinary resurrection from death to life of this little girl, I want you to see as well, not just why Jesus is powerful, but why he is for you to trust this morning. I want you to look at him. And it's not just because of his power, it's because of the way that he uses it. Look at how he speaks, this little girl. Somebody's 12-year-old little girl who's a corpse. There's an Anglican minister. He's in his 90s now. He's called Dick Lucas. He's a wise man. And he did a lot of work on this, uh, kind of doing an exposition of this passage as Mark tells in his gospel because Matthew and Mark also tell the same story in their gospel. And in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us what Jesus said to the little girl in Aramaic because Jesus spoke in Aramaic at the time and Mark quotes those words, Talitha kum, it's a beautiful little phrase. And that means little girl arise, little girl get up. But Dick Lucas did some work on the exact linguistic sense of this phrase, Talitha kum, and he explained that in first century Middle East, first century Judea, this word was very, very gentle. It was more gentle even than little girl get up. It was like a a diminutive. He said, actually, once you really dig into the sense of Talitha, little girl, he said, it's much more like saying sweetheart. It's that kind of gentle and uh, precious and actually, once you put the, the phrase together, he said the phrase is, is much more like a parent saying to a little child on a summer's morning, sweetheart, it's time to get up now. That's the kind of sense of the phrase. That's the kind of gentleness that actually Jesus is talking with. That's, that's Jesus. That's the Jesus. Just in a moment, with this beautiful gentleness, he reaches down to this little girl, probably just smiling gently and confidently and calmly, and reaches down to her and says, Sweetheart, it's time to get up now. Just in a moment, he just reaches down into death, the most implacable, irreversible foe the human race has ever, ever faced, and says, Sweetheart, it's time to get up now, and lifts her from death into life. I think Jesus knew all along what he was going to do. He knew when Jairus first came to him what he was going to do. He knew when the woman delayed him what he was going to do. He knew when Jairus' servant announced that she was dead what he was going to do. All along, Jesus knows what he's doing. You can trust a man, a God like this. It's like he's saying to Jairus, I think, and maybe even some of you this morning, it's like he's saying, I know you're desperate. I know you want me to hurry up, but I won't be hurried. Not because I'm exercising my power, but because I love you. Because I've got more for you than actually you realize. He's saying to you, you can trust me in the waiting. And can't you? You can trust a God like this, who doesn't just exercise power, but uses it in this way. So, let me help us to respond. I wonder, where, where are you in this scene? Remember I said, don't just observe, try and step into it. Where are you in this scene? I think maybe there are three types of people here this morning. It, might not be, it won't be all of us, but I think there are three types of people here this morning. 
first type of person is this. Are you, it's like, are you a part of the crowd? The crowd that Luke tells us, quotes, was pressing up against Jesus. What I mean by that is you're, you're there, but you're not really approaching Jesus. You're observing, even bumping up against him, but you're not actually encountering him for yourself. You see, it's possible to be hanging around Jesus, to be hanging around church, to be doing some of the things, the activities, and not actually be receiving from him unless you take a step forward. When the woman did that, when she took a step forward and touched him, encountered him, power went out from him to her in a way that didn't to those who were just observing and bumping up against him. I wonder if that might be you this morning. Secondly, maybe you identify more with the woman in the sense that you have a long-standing weight, if I can put it that way. You know, I know some of you, many of you, not all of you. I know that for some of us, there's a, there may or there is a, a long-standing weight. You've been praying something for years, hoping, trusting, maybe God will intervene. And it hasn't changed. And... Perhaps you become accustomed to how this is just how it is. Maybe you've been disappointed so many times that for me to invite you to step forward once again and touch Jesus actually is too risky. Maybe thirdly, you identify more with Jairus. And it's not so much a long-standing thing that you become accustomed to over time. It is new and it is urgent and it is now a loved one or a family member or a circumstance that is, it feels like a crisis and you feel like Jairus scratching your head, looking at Jesus delaying, saying, what is going on, God? It is clear to me and everybody here what you should be doing. This is now for you. I think for all of those three types of people and even for those of us who wouldn't be in those situations and yet would want to wisely equip ourselves when they come, I think for all of us, the response is, is the same. It, it's what we're doing week after week in, these, in this series, is, is to look at Jesus afresh. Look at this man. You can trust him. Look at the power that he wields. Look at the power that he wields. He can, he can break through if you will risk stepping out for the first time or for a fresh time. He's the one who's beaten death. He's the one who reached down to the little girl and in a moment raised her out from death into life. He can heal sickness. I believe that. Do we see much of it in this church? Nope. But I believe it's him and part of who he is and what he has for us. And yes, there's mystery in it, but we have a healing God who beckons us to respond to him for the first time or for a fresh time. He can transform relationships. He can transform a person's heart like that and transform death into life. This is the God who reached, not just reached into death, this is the God who went to death himself and came out the other side into life. He is a transformative God. But along with the way that he, along with the power that he has, Please also look at the way that he wields his power. Look at the tenderness with which he uses it. Daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. You're at peace with God.
sweetheart, you're alive now. Come on, help you get. That's a God you can trust, isn't it? A God who uses his power like that. And look also at what you can learn about him in the waiting. Not just what you get from him in the waiting. And I'm preaching to myself, I promise you. I just want God to do stuff now. (laughs) But look at what you can learn about him in the waiting. God has got so much for us to realize about him and who he is. Not just to get from him. He's He's the everlasting one. The one who exists through the ages. The one for whom a thousand years... It's like a day. In the waiting, it's been my limited experience, and I know know the more profound experience, some of you, that he often does more precious things in the waiting, showing us about him, than even the thing we want him to do. And I think there are enough people in this room and in this church who can testify to that with more weight than than I'm able to. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Jamie and George to come and help us to continue to respond and to worship. And what I want to do is just to pray. And I'm going to try and pray in, in three little ways that would help you to also pray where you are. So I'm going to pray. And if the words that I use kind of resonate and ring true and they're helpful, then feel really free to use them just in the quiet of your, of your heart. And then after that, we'll, we'll stand and we'll worship. And we'll try and use particularly the first song to stand before God as we are seeking to respond to him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I want to pray for anyone who is in that crowd situation and we're kind of around and we are, are observing some stuff. Maybe we have been a Christian before. Maybe we're not yet. We've observed and we're, we're exploring and, and we've even kind of felt like we've bumped up against you, Jesus, occasionally, but we, we haven't yet encountered you. We haven't yet received power from you. We haven't yet taken a step of faith and reached out and touched you and received you for who you are. Please would you help any people in those situations to do just that. Take a step of faith to step out from the crowd and touch you knowing that you are so tender and so powerful. And I also pray for anyone who would identify more with the woman who would say, I've got a long-standing weight (laughs) and it's hard and it's mysterious and I'm not sure it's worth it, frankly. I just pray in these moments, would you come in tenderness and comfort? Jesus, the same Jesus who spoke so gently to that woman, that little girl, would you come in comfort in these moments? And would you also come and build faith? Faith to take a fresh step, to reach out, to touch you and to trust you and to receive power from you for breakthrough, for change, for healing, for transformation. And then I pray thirdly for anyone who would say, I'm I'm more in Joris' shoes. This is just crisis stuff. This has got to change. (laughs) Anyone who is just crying out, God, it is so patently clear what you should be doing. Oh, Father, come in compassion right now, in tenderness. And I pray 
in the mystery of it, I pray both things. God, come and do a miracle. Come and heal. Come and restore. Come and restore a body. Come and restore a broken relationship. Or a broken dream. And at the same time as you do that, God, in your timing, would you also help that person, these people, to take a step of faith and to trust you, to take you by the hand and say, change or no change. Whether you give, whether you take away, I trust you because you are God, because you are eternal, because you are everlasting, and because... Your supreme love is even better than life.